thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Hannah Critchlow. Hello, Hannah. Hello, and this week, a new solar-powered retinal implant to restore sight to the blind. Is it safe to drink alcohol in pregnancy and, also under the microscope, the world of fungi? From how they enable plants to exchange nutrients with each other, to how they can poison you and even produce compostable packaging materials. And if you would like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, and we also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. First, though, let's kick off with a look at what's been making scientific headlines this week. And I've got a story out of Stanford in the US. Yossi Mandel and his colleagues have invented a new implant for the retina, which is self-powering and can replace the photoreceptors, the cells that convert effectively light into sight. Now, how this works is that it's intended that you put this device into eyes which have been damaged by diseases like retinitis pigmentosa. This is a common condition where just the photoreceptors, the rods or cones, are lost and the rest of the retina stays relatively healthy. So the idea is that you could create a device that would work a bit like those rods and cones and convert light into electrical signals that you could then input into the surviving retina and it would then transmit those signals into the brain. And in this paper in Nature Communications this week, what they have done is to come up with this very clever array of photovoltaics. It's a bit like a miniature solar cell for the eye. They take these tiny photovoltaic cells which are responsive to light in the near-infrared regime. In other words, it's just beyond the red, so we can't see it and they couple in series three of these things together as a series of little mini pixels and they make a matrix of 186 of these pixels and you can implant this thing which is thinner than a human hair into the underside of the retina right next to where the rods and cones would normally go and in rats in which they did this they used rats that had a disease that led to their retina breaking down they lost their rods and cones they also tried healthy rats as well as controls and when they put these things in let them settle down for a little while and then shone spots of near-infrared light at the implants in the eye they could show that the brain was responding to the shining of light onto this implant indicating it must be communicating with the retina and then transmitting the signals down the optic nerve 
and into the brain and it worked for six months and it also worked in exactly the same way as your normal rods and cones would work in response to pulses of light because your eye gets less and less responsive to changes in light when it's flickering on and off very rapidly so it responds quite well when the flickers are at about twice a second by the time you get to about 20 times a second it sort of blurs into one and you can't tell the difference and they saw the same trajectory in the way the brain was responding so it does look like it's very faithfully mirroring what your normal working retina would do. That's incredible. I mean, that's an amazing new technological development. Could they tell whether it impaired the vision of the rats in any way at all? Well, these are animals, remember, that were they allowed to live their normal lifespan because they have this inbuilt genetic problem, their retina breaks down and they lose the rods and cones that would normally enable them to see. So the fact that these animals have lost those photoreceptors and now when you shine this light, which is near infrared, you can't see that. These animals were responding to it, showing that their eye must be seeing that light. And the only way they could see it was through this prosthesis. So it's definitely working. The key thing, though, is we can't really view the world in near-infrared. If we were to use this, it would basically involve some kind of mini-projector that would beam a camera picture of the world in the near-infrared wavelengths into the eye onto an implant so you would then see using it. So that, that's sort of one slight stumbling block. But one major advantage of this is previous attempts to put prostheses into the retina have involved systems where you have to have a power supply. And if you run wires through the inside of the eye then you end up stimulating bits of the retina that you don't want to and it damages the acuity or the resolution of the picture that you build up. This is self-powering, which means it doesn't need a power supply, no extra wires, much safer and probably longer lived. Brilliant. The story that I've picked for this week, it's about alcohol and whether expectant mothers should be drinking alcohol at all and whether it might affect their unborn child down the line. It's been well uh, documented that if an expectant mother drinks too much alcohol, then this can lead to fetal alcohol exposure, which actually affects about two in a thousand live births in Europe and in America. Um, so it's a fairly prevalent disorder and it's also quite a significant disorder. So in the infants they then uh, brought up, they have learning and memory problems and they also have a predisposition to developing psychiatric conditions and even having um, drug addiction problems later in life themselves. So generally speaking, your GP will say, no, do not drink if you are pregnant. But there hasn't been really any robust data to date on whether moderate drinking, so about three to seven glasses of wine a week, would actually detrimentally affect the child later on in life. But researchers in Bristol have just published in the British Medical Journal Open a really big study that's been looking at almost 7,000 infants over a 10-year period. They were looking at one particular aspect of behaviour in these children, and that was, rather ironically, I think, balance. The development of fine motor control and balance is one of the main things that the brain during development is uh, focusing on. The researchers asked these 7,000 children that were 10 years old to um, walk along a little beam and recorded how balanced they were. And they also got them to stand on one leg. And then they took that data and they cross-referenced it with um, self-reports from the mothers how much alcohol they were drinking. And rather surprisingly the scientists found that those mothers that were drinking three to seven glasses of wine a week, so a glass of wine a night almost, their children 
had significantly improved balance 10 years down the line. The scientists emphasise the fact that this data is not saying that you should drink a glass of wine a night when you're pregnant in order to produce a well-balanced child. They delved deeper into the data because they were quite surprised by this finding and um, they found that the mothers that were drinking uh, moderate amounts of alcohol, as they classed it, had a higher socio-economic background and a higher level of education and this may in some way be linked with the infant's balanced development. Possibly they were having more um, after-school activities and developing their, their balance and their motor control. So they were on the, the Chardonnay rather than the Blue Nun. The thing is though, is balance a, a sensitive measure then? Because if you find there's no effect, are you measuring the right thing? Well, exactly. Whether that's the most telling outcome to actually measure is a question, and it's a good question to raise. I'm a bit concerned because I think this is going to lead to more people saying, one minute we're told, don't drink at all, the next minute we're being told, it's okay. And I think we really do need some clear evidence, one way or the other, with the sorts of questions that you've been raising in that story actually being addressed. Thanks for that, Hannah. Now, this week, Google launched 30 huge plastic balloons in New Zealand to test the technology for what's being dubbed Project Loon. This is a network of balloons that could supply internet access and mobile phone signals to remote locations in countries where networks on the ground aren't fully developed yet. Now, here is the quick-fire science on this with Kate Lamble and Dominic Ford. The balloons are made of layers of polythene 15 metres wide and 12 metres high and are filled with helium so they can float into position. Each balloon will ascend to an altitude of 20 kilometres into a layer of the atmosphere known as the stratosphere. At that height, you'll need a pair of binoculars to see them in the sky. At that altitude, where the balloons usually end up bursting since the helium inside them expands as they rise. But the multiple layers of plastic in Google's balloons are designed to stop them from popping. Anyone who wants to use the network will need to attach an antenna to their home. This will send a signal to the nearest balloon. The information will then be sent from balloon to balloon before being relayed back to a ground station on Earth. Each balloon can provide internet access over distances of up to 40 kilometres. And because they're so high up, buildings and hills won't create signal black spots. The system aims to deliver data at a similar speed to the 3G network you might use on your mobile phone, but it could eventually be even faster. The balloons carry solar panels, which will provide all of the power needed to keep the onboard radio antennas and electronics running. Once in position, the balloons will float around naturally in the stratosphere, but the team will be able to direct the balloons to move up or down, which they hope will allow them to switch between layers of wind which move in different directions and at different speeds. By using the wind to blow the balloons around in this way, they hope to be able to build automated computer systems which will keep the balloons in formation. Over time, wind currents will cause the balloons to drift over huge distances, but the team hope that the balloons will eventually form a global network. Those above South Africa, for example, may eventually serve South America before coming around the world once again. Kate Lamble and Dominic Ford with this week's Quickfire Science on Project Loon. And you can also download separately Quickfire Science as it's one of our own podcasts from our website. You can go to nakedscientists.com forward slash quickfire science. More news now. And Chris, I believe you've got a story on aspirin. It's well known that if you take aspirin, you have a lower rate of developing certain types of cancers. We know for a fact that aspirin is very powerfully protective against bowel cancer and it also acts against lung cancer, throat cancer, esophageal cancer, even breast cancer. No one knows why, though. 
there's various speculations out there that in some way aspirin might or aspirin like drugs might damp down inflammation and inflammation damages cells and if cells are being made to grow to repair themselves this means they're more likely to pick up changes to their DNA or mutations that can make them become cancerous. But there's been very little evidence as to what the mechanism is. There's a paper out this week that has helped to shed some light on this, though. It's in PLOS One from MIT researcher Carlo Malley and his colleagues. And they have worked on 13 patients who have been undergoing long-term follow-up for a condition called Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is a condition which is associated with esophageal cancer. It's a risk factor for getting it. And it is a change in the nature of the cells which line the lower part of your esophagus, usually in response to acid splashing out of the stomach. And it causes these cells to change their characteristics to better defend that bit of tissue. But people who have this, because of the risk of developing cancer, undergo regular follow-up, usually in the form of putting a telescope down and often taking a small biopsy just to make sure that the cells aren't changing and becoming cancerous. So they've got 13 patients that they've actually followed up over, in one person's case, 19 years, and they've got more than 160 biopsies from this group of patients spanning this period. And by luck, some of them were taking aspirin for a certain period of time, or an equivalent drug, and then they stopped it, Others weren't taking an aspirin-like drug for a certain period of time, and then they started it. So they've got this natural crossover control trial in this cohort of patients, and they have looked at the genetic material in the cells of the biopsies collected from these patients spanning that window, and the results are really striking. So they find when the patients are not taking the aspirin-like drug, they are accruing genetic changes in their cells at the rate of 7.8 changes they pick up in their study per year, and the group who are on the aspirin-like agents at the same time, they're only accruing changes at the rate of 0.6 per year. So in other words, there's about a tenfold or an order of magnitude increase in the rate at which DNA is changing in these individuals when they're not taking the aspirin-like agent. So this strongly argues that the reason we get cancers if we're at risk of cancer and we take aspirin is because you are accruing genetic changes probably secondary to inflammatory changes or cells being forced to divide more rapidly and in that they're actually picking up more damage to their DNA. That's a very strong, significant finding there. I mean, does this mean that maybe we should all be taking small amounts of aspirin each day as a preemptive measure to protect our DNA? Scientists have looked at that. There was a very big study that was done recently uh, from a number of centres, um, based actually the study based in Edinburgh, and they were asking that very question. Is it worth our while just putting it in the water supply almost? And the answer is no, it's not. There are certain people who benefit very strongly from taking aspirin at a low dose. 75 milligrams a day is a baby aspirin. That provides protection against heart attack and stroke and cancer. It carries with it a significant risk of bleeding because aspirin-like drugs inhibit the activity of the blood's platelets, which do clotting. So you've got to do a balancing act. People who are not at risk of cancers to a high level or heart disease or stroke probably won't benefit through taking an aspirin, but they will certainly suffer a haemorrhage problem if, if they're in the unlucky group that are going to have that anyway. Whereas people who are at an elevated risk of having a heart attack or a stroke or one of those malignancies or have already had a cancer, they can actually prevent relapse in some cases if you take aspirin. So in that group, it's worth doing it. And all from the power of willow. That's a brilliant finding. My next paper is all about memory. Oscar Wilde called memory the diary that we all carry about with us. And scientists, with their curiosity, are keen to see where and how that diary is written. 
Memories occur in our brain and there's 100 billion nerve cells in our brain and they're connected to each other. There's about a thousand trillion connections in the human brain and it's thought that new connections are made from one nerve cell to another as we learn something new. Some of the connections look like little mushrooms with proteins in the kind of the head of the mushroom and these proteins are there to help carry electricity from one nerve cell that's connected to the next nerve cell and that is how we think and learn from our environment and remember things. So you're saying that uh, you have an experience... And this is translated in a certain part of the brain into new connections between nerve cells in the form of these mushroom-shaped projections from one cell to the next. That's what's thought, yes. But really, scientists wanted to find a new tool that would help them to look at the proteins in that bulbous mushroom uh, connection. And they, they found it very difficult to find a technique that would allow them to do that in the living brain. But published this week in Neuron, some scientists at University of Southern California have published this new microscopic probe that can light up these connections. They've found this antibody that can actually be inserted into a cell and it still retains its shape. It doesn't dissolve as most antibodies will do when they go inside a cell. And they've managed to enable it to stick to the protein in this mushroom-shaped connection. And then they've also tagged it with this green fluorescent protein from the jellyfish. And in that way, they can actually see how these proteins in that connection move around and change as you can learn and remember new things. And so they've now tested this in mouse brain, a mouse brain slice, and also mice um, nerve cells growing in a Petri dish. It doesn't seem to be adversely affecting the cells there. So the next step is to look in the living mouse as it's doing different tasks. What's the protein that the antibody is locking onto and flagging up in these connections between the cells? So the protein is a protein called postsynaptic density 95, and it's one of these particular proteins... It trips off the tongue, it, it? does trip off the tongue, yeah. It helps to recruit other proteins, and then they act all together to kind of regulate this transfer of electrical information from one nerve cell to another. So the scientists can use this thing called mRNA display synthesis in order to probe loads of different proteins that are in this kind of mushroom, in this synapse. So they don't just have to look at PSD95, they can look at other proteins as well. So it's a fascinating technology, very clever. How did they come to pick on that particular protein? Why look at that one? Well, PSD95 is well studied to start with, it's well characterised and it's also been implicated in learning and memory and there's problems with this protein in, for example, schizophrenia where people with schizophrenia often have problems with their learning and memory uh, and, and so, yeah, it's just a very well characterised protein that's, that's highly involved in the synapse dynamics. So the major breakthrough is the ability to do this clever antibody inside the cell carrying the marker onto that target. So you could actually use that for a range of different targets to to explore a range of different things that are going on in cells, not just memory. Exactly, yes. This new technique isn't just limited for neuroscience. It could be used for other types of cells, not just those in the nervous system. Thank you very much, Hannah. And uh, you can find more information about that story and the references to all of the things we've been discussing on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith and also with us this week, Hannah Critchlow. There are at least two places in the body where blood vessels are actively discouraged from growing. One is in the cornea, on the front of your eye. The other is in the retina, in the back of your eye. And that's with good reason, because if blood vessels do invade those sites, then they can cause blindness. But how is this exclusion zone achieved? It turns out that both of those sites produce a soluble molecule that soaks up and therefore blocks the signal that would normally trigger blood vessels to form. 
Balaram Bhatti. When you look at the eye, it has several important yet almost contradictory missions. The cornea in the front of the eye has to stay clear, it has to stay strong, it has to focus, and it has to do all that without having any blood vessels that can give it nutrition or oxygen. Now in the retina, at the very back of the eye, is what's called the photoreceptor layer. And the photoreceptors are, are the rods and cones that convert light into sight. Those rods and cones use a lot of oxygen. They're actually the most metabolically active cells in the body. And so they are situated right next to the choroid, the blood vessel tissue network that has the highest blood flow of any vascular network in the body. And so you have these photoreceptors that demand high oxygen situated right next to this incredibly rich blood vessel network, yet that layer of the retina should not have blood vessels because as soon as blood vessels come in, that can distort the vision. And so you have these contradictory imperatives, clarity versus oxygen demand. How did you approach that and begin to ask what keeps the blood vessels out of the retina despite its very high oxygen demand and equally the cornea? I started looking at the cornea and realized that the cornea expresses several different VEGF receptors. And VEGF is a vascular endothelial growth factor. But interestingly enough, it expressed one particular form of VEGF receptor called SFLT1, soluble VEGF receptor 1. And we looked at multiple mammals. One of the very few mammals that in nature does not have a clear cornea is the Florida manatee, and it actually has a vascularized cornea. A couple of mouse strains that are genetically mutated also have vascularized cornea. And so we found that in these mutant mice and in the manatee, this SLIT1 was missing. And we also found that restoring SLIT1 to mice that were lacking in the molecule helped restore corneal clarity, the lack of blood vessels. Is the model or the hypothesis then that the cornea in this instance is secreting this molecule which has the effect of soaking up a factor which would otherwise trigger the growth of blood vessels? It's locking it away so that the blood vessels do not grow. Precisely. And so then I guess you must have thought, well, if that's what's going on in the front of the eye, could the same trick be playing out in the back of the eye, in the retina. So is there a, a soluble form of this, for want of a better phrase, blotting paper for VEGF, the factor that makes blood vessels in the back of the eye, preventing it from acting there in the retina too? Absolutely. So the soluble VEGF receptor is a decoy, or as you put it, blotting paper. So it serves as a sink for VEGF. And so our very first preliminary experiment was just to see, well, is this molecule expressed in the retina? And interestingly enough, it was expressed in the retinal pigment epithelium, which is the layer that is underneath the rods and cones and just above the choroid. And so that thin red line, if you will, of RPE tissue is what keeps those choroidal blood vessels out 
of the retina, and the RPE does indeed express as foot at high levels. So I suppose it could be regarded as the million-dollar question. If you look in people who've got disease in their retina, disease is characterised by new blood vessels growing in, things like wet macular degeneration. Do they lose the secretion of this VEGF blotting paper, the, the S-flit signal, which allows those blood vessels to invade in the way they do, pathologically? Exactly. I'd say that's not just a $1 million question, but it affects 10 million Americans and 2 million Britons. And so we proceeded to examine what happens in patients with disease. Then we did a number of experiments in mice, and we found that knocking down this molecule, S-flit, allows these blood vessels, the choroidal blood vessels, to invade the retina. Do you think that if we were to go in and therefore turn that signal on more or enhance it in people with disease, we could arrest the disease process and do it in a safe way? Correct. There's a sister paper that came out in ACS Nano just a couple of months ago where we present data on that exact same question. We found that in both a mouse model of macular degeneration and a monkey model of macular degeneration, that if we delivered nanoparticles loaded with a subunit of FLT1, injected intravenously, not into the eye, but just through a systemic vein, could cause regression of these uh, choroid blood vessels growing into the retina in both mice and monkeys. Bala Ambati from the University of Utah, and he published that paper this week in the journal eLife. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Hannah Critchlow, and with Chris Smith. Now, on to our topic for the rest of the show, and this week we'll be discussing the kingdom of organisms which contain the fastest living thing on the planet, the organisms responsible for making beer ferment, and one species which is used to sharpen razors. It's the hugely diverse kingdom of fungi. And with over 3,000 species of mushrooms and toadstools in the UK alone, we figured there had to be more to them than just a bit of mould. So to find out how they work, we're joined by Ali Ashby. She is from the Department of Plant Sciences at Cambridge University. Hi, Ali. Hiya. For the uninitiated, what actually is a fungus? Fungi are a very diverse group of organisms. There are over 1.5 million different species of fungi. They're split into roughly five different phyla, so five different groups. And they do some amazing things for us and for our environment. But the basic structure of a fungal cell is actually fairly similar to a plant and animal cell. It has a membrane, just like an animal cell does, and it has a cell wall, just like a plant cell does. But the cell wall is composed of chitin rather than cellulose, which of course a plant cell wall is composed of. And of course, Fungi don't contain chloroplasts, so they can't photosynthesize. So but does that they, mean they depend on plants then to to get their energy? How do they how do they survive? They're heterotrophic organisms, so basically what they do is they break down dead organic matter. They are the world's best recyclers and what they do is they send out fine filaments of hyphae which group together to form the main body of a filamentous fungus that's the mycelium and the mycelium ramifies through just about every habitat on this planet 
producing extracellular enzymes which are released into the environment around the mycelium and they're then used to obviously break down large organic molecules into smaller building blocks that can be used not only by the fungus but also by other organisms within the ecosystem. So the fungus secretes this digestive juice. The goodies get taken up into the fungus and it then carts it off, grows more fungus, but then also, I was reading, it almost uses it for sort of barter with other organisms to trade. That's right. One of the amazing things that fungi do is they form partnerships with plants. Uh, These partnerships are called mycorrhizas. There are several different types of mycorrhizas, but probably the two most dominant types are the ectomycorrhizas, and they form between the basidiomycete group of fungi and trees and shrubs within the woodland habitat. We also have the AM mycorrhizae, the arbuscular mycorrhizae, and they actually are a partnership between glomeromycota and up to 80% of plant species, mainly crop plants and horticultural plants. Basically what happens with an AM mycorrhizal association is the fungus will actually penetrate the cells of the cortex of the root. And there's basically a trade-off. The fungus will send out its mycelial strands out into the environment and into areas where it can capture minerals like nitrogen and phosphorus and water and translocate those back to the plants where they're taken up and used for plant growth. What does the plant pay for this well, uh, in return, valuable mineral? In return, of course, the plant provides photosynthate, carbon compounds that it's made during photosynthesis. But it's really very interesting because... Plants can associate with many more than just one mycorrhizae. They can associate with a whole group of mycorrhizae. Similarly, mycorrhizas can build associations with a number of different plants. And there's a trade-off. A plant will decide whether or not it's going to give a lot of carbon to its mycorrhizal partner and it's all dependent on how much phosphorus and nitrogen the mycorrhizal partner will give in return. In other words, it's sort of a two-way biological marketplace where both partners are contributing products and services and both are rewarded for success. Do other signals potentially go through that network, apart from just, I give you some sugar, you give me back some phosphorus, that's very nice. What about if I'm sensing danger in my neck of the woods? Can I send a signal via you to Hannah to say, watch out? Absolutely. We found some very interesting things recently with common mycorrhizal networks, and that is that if a plant that has a common mycorrhizal network is challenged by a pathogen, then it can actually send infochemical signals through the common mycorrhizal network to neighbouring plants. And this allows those plants to become primed for resistance. So they build up a sort of immunity. And it's a little bit like the innate immune system in animals. So it becomes primed and ready and able to defend itself should it be challenged. 
But are fungi always the good guys? Fungi do some amazing things for us and they make the world tick. But of course, they can be rotters. They do do bad things too. In fact, 70% of plant diseases are caused by fungi. And a number of fungi also produce secondary metabolites that have toxic effects, particularly if humans consume the mushroom. And we'll find out a bit more about those in just a second. Ali Ashby from the Department of Plant Sciences, thank you very much. As Alison has just explained, fungi are amazing organisms and from experience they can be delicious too. I like mine boiled in butter. Boiled in butter? Boiled and bubbled in butter. It's a serious great. butter action. Yeah. But some fungi also contain deadly toxins. Nicholas Evans, the author of The Horse Whisperer, is all too aware of this after he accidentally picked deadly webcap mushrooms on a foraging trip to the woods. Kate Lamble spoke to him about his experiences. Last time we met Nicholas, I was working on a TV book show and in order to get the interview, I remember that we had to arrange this mad dash on a motorbike across London. <laughs> I remember that, yes. It was, it was terribly exciting. It was, in order to get you uh, to something a bit more serious, to dialysis. Yeah. Thankfully, I hear you're better now, but can you tell me a bit about how you got so ill in the first place? My wife and I and, and our young son, who was six years old at the time, went to visit her relatives in Scotland and while we were there we were told by somebody who lived there that uh, there were some fabulous seps and chanterelles growing in the woods. Nobody else seemed to be interested in going so I walked up the track and went into this wood and uh, there there were just two kinds of mushrooms growing there and I know chanterelles well from lots of times that I've been there before. The other mushrooms, which um, were supposedly seps, looked a bit different from the seps that I had picked probably about 12 years before with a friend here in Devon where I live. I thought, well, maybe it's a variety that's slightly different from the ones that grow down south. So anyway, I picked them. We prepared them and I cooked them in a bit of butter and with the chanterelles and some parsley, and which is what I would normally do. Thank God the four children who were eating with us four adults had the good sense not to eat any of the mushrooms. They didn't taste terribly good, actually. They tasted kind of earthy. But they were okay enough for both of the men, Alistair, Charlotte's brother, and myself, to have a second helping. How much did you know about mushrooms and mushroom picking beforehand? Because we've got quite a phobia of going out and do that in the UK at least. The mushrooms that we eat are quite limited. Did you feel comfortable enough to go out and sort of feel like you knew what you were doing when you were choosing the mushrooms? I've normally, ever since I was a kid, with my dad, picked field mushrooms. To be honest, or haven't through my life, picked much that's exotic. I've cooked and eaten little tiny puffballs, which are fantastic. The occasional parasol mushroom. But most things I wouldn't touch because I just would not feel confident of them. And even if I picked them, I'd come back and identify them, but I would throw them away. But on this occasion, it was a case of two people, each believing the other knew what he or she was doing. It turned out that the lady who told me that they were seps had always called all brown mushrooms seps. And when she told us that the next day when we were starting to vomit and have diarrhoea, you know, we all kind of <laughs> gasped a bit. Had it not had such tragic consequences, it would have been a really interesting case of passing the trust to somebody else. You just believe what the other person's saying and suspend your own 
natural sort of protective instincts. And that moment of, of trusting in somebody else's judgment, how quickly did you know that something wasn't right and that they weren't Seps? The next morning, Alistair started to feel sick. And then as the day went on, my wife, Charlotte, started feeling odd. And then by about mid-afternoon, I started feeling a little bit weird. And then it all started to develop very, very quickly. And by the end of the next day, all four of us were in Elgin Hospital. How long did it take for the hospital to work out that it was the mushrooms? We had the family doctor came round, and we knew pretty well, actually, what they were. I mean, we looked in the book the very next morning when Alistair started feeling ill and Charlotte was already ill. It was so clear from the photograph that what we had eaten, it wasn't a sep, it was a mushroom called... Cortinaria speciosissimus, which some people call the deadly webcap, apparently. And it had a, a rather comforting skull and crossbones underneath it with the little caption, deadly poisonous. How did you react when you saw that? I, I imagine I'd have just been terrified. We knew something was going on, obviously, and there was a sort of mounting fear, but it wasn't like a, a panic. We thought it would be sorted, you know, we thought we'd just get like a severe case of food poisoning. We didn't know exactly what this mushroom does, and unlike some other mushrooms, which actually, in a sense, I suppose, are more dangerous because they attack all of your organs, often the liver, this Cortinaria speciosissimus is very choosy. It just heads straight for the kidney and closes your kidney down. And we were being prepared for dialysis pretty much straight away. You stop peeing almost immediately, or a, little, a couple of little drops. I didn't pee for three years after it, actually, the transplant. And just shocking sickness. For the first week, I really wanted to die. We all did, actually. And it was only the, the thought of our little six-year-old boy that really kept me and, and my wife alive. It would have been much better to surrender to it and go, actually. As I say, last time I saw you, you were on dialysis, and that was quite a while after the initial incident. How long did you remain on dialysis and the problems going, went on for? It started taking a toll on my heart. The dialysis puts your heart under tremendous pressure. And that's when, although my daughter Lauren had offered right from the start, as had all of my kids, even Finley, who was 10 years old by then and 9 years old, and... Um, it was only when I, my heart was in trouble and my daughter said, Dad, you've really got to wake up. You're going to take my kidney. She said, I'm not being wonderfully unselfish. I'm being really selfish. I'd just like you to be around when I have kids and, um, and get to meet them. And so we did it. And, and my life completely changed. I was just... I discovered about a month after the transplant what I used to feel like. And then Charlotte had her transplant a year after mine, and she is now wonderfully fit and well, and we are, you know, we're back to normal. What's your advice for anyone who goes out wild picking like you did? The advice which I have always followed, except for this one isolated and absolutely catastrophic occasion, is that you should never eat anything without checking it first in a very good mushroom book. Mushrooms go through different phases as they grow, so it's, it's important to have a picture and text on the various stages of growth. A mushroom that comes out of the ground looks often quite sort of closed in on itself, and then it can spread and become something that looks almost altogether different. So you have to be sure of what you're eating, and if you don't, you're like we were, foolish. 
Author Nicholas Evans speaking to Kate Lamble, and it's good to hear that Nick has made a full recovery. Have you ever been mushroom picking? Are you a confident scout or do you worry about identifying your finds correctly? Let us know and we'll include it in the mailbox next week. You can email us here at chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. Nick Evans's experience of mushroom poisoning was devastating, but how do they produce these toxins, the mushrooms that is, and are they really targeted at us? To find out, we're joined by Tom Bruns from the University of California at Berkeley, who's an expert on fungal ecology and evolution. Hello, Tom. Hi. So why do we think that fungi make these toxins in the first place? Well, the quick answer is we don't really know, but the prevalent theory would be that they're making these to prevent them from being eaten by you know, other organisms that would chew up their fruit bodies before they can sporulate. Exactly which organisms are being targeted isn't clear in most cases. It's an extraordinary case of overkill, though, isn't it? If you listen to what Nick had to say, A, it wasn't much of a deterrent, and it happened much later, so it didn't really stop him destroying the fruiting body. So humans, presumably not the target of these toxins. Probably not, because, you know, we're not the major selective force on them, right? With few exceptions, we're not scouring the woods and clearing out all the mushrooms. Certainly in North America, deer would be a very common vertebrate that would eat mushrooms, and they eat a lot of them. You know, a toxin like this would probably have a very similar effect on them, I would think. Are there any animals that are invulnerable to the toxins? Can any animals eat these things with impunity? Certainly there's a lot of insects, particularly fungus flies, beetles, and so on, that chew up lots of different mushrooms, including some of the most deadly. So they seem to have some immunity to it, yes. And when they get inside the bodies of target organisms, whether it's us, deer, rabbits, whatever, how do they actually tend to work? Do they all work in the same way as the one that Nick had? There's a huge number of mushroom toxins that all act in very, very different ways that aren't even related to each other. The one that he encountered here goes straight for the kidneys, but I don't believe it's actually known how it does that. It's been relatively recent years that this has been sorted out that it it is this particular mushroom or group of them that have this kidney toxin. Once these toxins enter the body, is there any way that we can get rid of them? With a lot of mushroom toxins, you basically get rid of it yourself fairly quickly. The ones that are less lethal, you're usually sick in hours after eating it. And the ones that are really lethal are the ones, like we're discussing here, that come on many hours after you've eaten them. In that case, the toxins are very, very difficult to eliminate. And part of their toxicity is that they continue to cycle through your system and destroy more cells as they're doing that. So they're tough to get rid of. I think in this particular case, usually what happens is you end up on dialysis very quickly. And that can help to eliminate the toxin. But usually by the time you're doing that, the damage to the kidney is already extensive. And what about flipping the coin over and asking, well, if these things can have these devastating and dramatic effects in certain target organs, can we use that in some way and come up with some kind of novel therapeutic, perhaps for destroying cancers, for example? The one that's best known is the toxin that's in the ammonitis, the alpha ammonitin. And in that case, it, it shuts off a key enzyme in your system that allows you to produce protein. So it's a very, very general target. And the only reason that the liver in that case ends up being the main vulnerable um, organ is that it gets recycled into the liver again and again and again and concentrated in it. 
So it, it probably wouldn't be useful for cancer treatment, but it's been very useful for research. They've used it to study the process of transcription and making of proteins because you can, it allows you to shut it off. So it, it's actually a, a useful chemical for molecular biology, but probably not medicine per se. And based on your evolution knowledge, where did fungi get the chemical know-how to make these toxins in the first place? So in the case of the alpha aminitin that I was just talking about, there's been some very recent data on that from uh, genomic sequences of the aminitin mushroom. And it looks like the toxin is related to things like spider venoms and so on. So there is there are other organisms that make related compounds, but exactly how the fungi acquired them is not yet clear. What is clear is that fungi are really good at making lots and lots of diverse chemical compounds. And some of these end up being toxins and very useful to the fungi in some cases where, you know, they may kill off a competitor or they may prevent themselves from being eaten by it or something. But fungi in general are just really good chemists. They make lots of different compounds. Tom, thank you very much. That's Tom Bruns from the University of California at Berkeley. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Hannah Critchlow. Now, we've heard all about how fungi work in their natural environment, but one company, Ecovative Design, have worked out how to use mushroom roots in packaging, building insulation and even surfboards. We're joined by one of their founders, Gavin McIntyre. So, Gavin, plastic foam is used all over the world in packaging and so forth, but why do we need to come up with an alternative? What's the problem with using it? Well, the protective packaging foam that's used today, which is predominantly made out of expanded polystyrene, is a product that has a very short duration in terms of its use, but then when it comes to its disposal, has a life expectancy that'll exceed centuries. So what we've done is we've generated a a drop-in replacement with a grown material that is 100% home compostable. It can be put in the backyard and passively returned to the earth. And I believe you've used mushrooms to help solve this problem with plastic packaging. That's correct, because when you look at the ecosystem, mushrooms truly are nature's recyclers. But what we're really interested in is what's known as fungal mycelium, which, as you you called earlier, is similar to to mushroom roots. And uh, this is what we leverage as a natural glue or adhesive in our, our process. We don't usually associate fungi with building materials. So what properties do mushrooms have that make them good for using in this kind of thing? The core characteristics that make our material fantastic for the construction industry is that, first, they're Class A firewalls. You can hit these materials with a blowtorch, and they really won't burn, unlike foam, which will quickly proliferate a fire. They have the same insulation value, better water resistance, actually, because fungi, their construct is chitin, the same biopolymer you find in crab shells, for example. And, of course, they're incredibly strong which most of our products today are actually more durable and tougher than traditional plastic foams. But how are you then converting this and manufacturing it into the foam? So today, all of our raw materials are locally sourced agricultural byproducts. Rather than being dependent upon finite resources such as fossil fuels, we source all of our raw materials from within 50 miles of our manufacturing facility. So we're taking waste streams from farms, things like plant stocks, seed husks and seed hulls, and providing that in our process as a nutrition source for the fungus, as well as basically a bulking agent. So why does the fungus actually make this material stick together in this way? The way that the adhesion characteristic works with the fungus is that if you were to look at a microscopic scale, a lot of these plant materials do have some pores. 
And the fungus itself, in terms of its diameter, because these are small little filaments or fibers, individually known as hyphae, they can penetrate into the little pores of the plant material and actually bind it together. So it's digesting part of the plant product while actually adhering or sticking itself to it. And it's very similar to basically finding its way through a, a little maze, and that maze is comprised entirely of, of farm waste. So you're basically generating this big mushroom fungi farm in your local area. And then how do you kind of make this into the foam? We grow these materials to the final shape. We have these small growth enclosures where we mix a concoction of the farm waste and fungal mycelium tissue. And it's very similar to concrete. We pour it into the tool and over the period of just two to three days, the fungal mycelium will grow, digest some of the farm waste and bind the rest of it together and the resultant product has the final shape of the original geometry that you allot it. And of course, our final process is a drying or inactivation phase where we kill the fungus before it goes out the door. So by the end of the process, you don't have to worry about it growing again, and it's safe for shipment all around the world. How do you make sure that the mushroom's definitely dead? Because, I mean, you wouldn't want the mushroom to kind of spring to life again. Of course, and that's really critical, not as we ship domestically here in the United States, but as we ship internationally. We put our materials into a drying process that allows us to remove the water initially because this is a wet process. Turgor pressure drives growth similar to that of plants. So if the materials are too dry, they won't grow. So first we remove the remaining water and then we hit it with a very high temperature to ensure that the entire cross-section of the product is thoroughly dead. And we take measurements on petri dishes before our products go out the door to make sure they're no longer viable. And then once it's been used as a packaging, how long does it take to actually then degrade this material? Are we, are we then left with the problem that it's going to be around on the planet for a very long time? The product's final degradation is really dependent upon its environment. The only time the product will break down is if you put it in the soil. It has to be exposed to soil biota. So other fungi or bacteria that are prevalent and found in the soil produce the enzymes that are necessary to break down our material. But for example, if you were to leave it in a, in a house, it can well withstand 30 years, 30 plus years of use. And similarly, if this product were to be placed in the ocean, it will also degrade in about 90 days. And that's because the fungus is comprised of chitin, and chitin is very prevalent in crustaceans and other organisms that are found within the ocean. Thanks, Gavin. So that's Gavin McIntyre from Ecovative Design. Finally, Hannah has been taking a look at our question of the week. This week, we flex our mental muscles to get to the bottom of a listener's bodily reaction. Hello, naked scientists. My name is Ari Huttunen. I'd like to know, why do I feel sick because of too much exercise? When I have a too intensive workout, I sometimes have a sudden case of nausea during or afterwards. What makes this happen and what happens in the body? Poor Aru. Sickness after physical exertion. Well, let's find out what's happening to Aru's stomach during exercise. So I'm David Weston, a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. Feeling sick after exercise is something that most of us are pretty familiar with, especially if you exercise as infrequently as I do. But why does our body and our gastrointestinal system reassert itself after a run around the block? Well, exercise is very physically demanding and your body reacts by increasing blood flow to your muscles and your heart and your lungs and your brain to keep your body able to process energy and keep your muscles going. 
This diverts blood away from your visceral organs like your stomach and could deprive your gastrointestinal tract of the oxygen it requires to function. This symptom is called ischemia and it's believed to be one of the reasons that you might feel sick after intense or prolonged exercise. Now, ischemia can, in very severe cases, damage the lining of your stomach and cause the bacteria in your stomach or the toxins that they produce to enter your bloodstream. So some evidence also suggests that gastrointestinal distress is caused by what you eat and drink before exercise. One study found that foods with higher fat and protein content were linked with nausea and vomiting in triathlon runners. Other studies even suggest that taking aspirin before you exercise could increase your chance of gastrointestinal discomfort. Exercise also increases the levels of hormones released in the brain that control processes like thermoregulation, so your ability to maintain your body temperature. And this drives sweat to the surface of your skin and cools you, but can also result in dehydration. So a loss of fluid can decrease your blood pressure and could lead to the kind of ischemia that I was talking about before. Thanks, David. And poor Aru is not alone in experiencing this phenomena. Jean Kennedy says that she just simply cannot do most forms of floor exercises. She apparently goes green with nausea if she does. Whilst a second listener also had this to say on the matter. Hi, I'm Ross from Birmingham. This is something that I've experienced in the past and it can be quite uncomfortable. Having sought some medical advice, I found that eating properly well in advance of exercise and being well hydrated before and during exercise, that the problem went away. And David agrees with this advice. While current research suggests that you can reduce the likelihood of nausea and vomiting by ensuring that you don't eat three hours before intense exercise and also keeping hydrated is key, so don't forget to drink plenty of water. Well, with that topic flushed away, we move on to next week's question. Tom O'Hurley wrote in with this. I heard a boxer say, I knew it was time to retire when, in a fight, I saw my opening and knocked the guy out. Up until then, I had never seen the opening until my fist was coming out. What implication does this have for free will? It was his intention to knock him out, but he did it as a trained reflex before he was aware. So, is life predetermined? Or... Do we have control over our future? What do you think? You can send us your thoughts to studio at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page or you can join in the debate live on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Thanks, Hannah. That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Ali Ashby, Nick Evans, Tom Bruns and Gavin McIntyre. Thank you to Hannah Critchlow for helping to present this week's programme. The production was by Kate Lamble. Next week, we're going to be looking at models, not the type that won't get out of bed for more than 40 grand. We're talking about model organisms and also model organs. We'll be talking to researchers who can take breast tissue and make a model breast in a dish to find out how cancers develop and how drugs can be used to treat them. And we'll also talk to someone who's doing the equivalent experiments with lung tissue. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.